interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Welcome to Interrupted, the podcast of the West Star Institute, which is dedicated to advancing scholarship on the history and evolution of Christianity while exploring issues that matter to society and culture. Interrupting, enriching, and disturbing conventional religious discourse in the public square. Interrupted brings the expertise of Westar scholars, guests, and practitioners to bear on important issues in the world today. Hey there, everyone. My name is Matthew Baker, and in this episode of Interrupted, you'll hear a conversation between me, Jordan Miller, and Thomas J. Ord, who is a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies, an author and editor of over 25 books, and he directs a doctoral program at Northwind Theological Seminary and the Center for Open and Relational Theology. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Check those out. Tom teaches at institutions around the globe and is known for his contributions to research on love. I should have asked him about what research on love means. Sounds like it could be fun. As well as open and relational theology, science and religion, and the implications of freedom and relationships for transformation. Tom has recently written another book simply called Open and Relational Theology, an introduction to life-changing ideas which naturally we talk about in addition to a number of other things one might expect from a discussion uh, having to do with open and relational theology. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks again to Tom for coming on and talking with us. Had a good time. Peace. Well, uh, would you mind starting just by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about uh, who you are and what you're working on? Sure. I'm Thomas J. Ord. I'm a theologian. I do philosophy and do a lot of science and religion, so interdisciplinary studies. I direct a doctoral program at Northwind Theological Seminary and have taught uh, philosophy and theology in graduate school and college uh, education circles for 20 years. I write books and speak. Um, probably what I care most about is living a life of love. And that means not only in my personal like interactions with people, but also um, loving intellectually, you know, mind, body, soul, and strength, like Jesus said, um, in all dimensions of my life. And you have just had a recent book come out, right? Yes. Uh, in July, I had a book come out called Open and Relational Theology, an Introduction to Life-Changing Ideas. It's uh, basically meant for the person on the street, um, a kind of person who doesn't have a degree in theology, but might be interested in thinking about a God who is truly affected by what we do, uh, experiences time, analogous to how creatures experience time, and whose power is shaped by love. Yeah. So all of that sounds good. And we're definitely going to jump into some of the ideas in the book. I would love to hear something about your background, you know, your experiences and so on, how those have shaped the person that you are today, the views that you take. I heard a little Wesley 
uh, poking out in the, in yeah. something you said there in the introduction, uh, heart, head and hands or something, something along those lines. So yeah. Could you give us like a biographical sketch, however you want to do it? <laughs> Sounds good. All right. I grew up in a little farming community in Eastern Washington. My father was a school teacher. My mother was an entrepreneur started various businesses, was involved in the church as an associate pastor. She came from a Pentecostal holiness background. My father came from a Dutch Calvinist background, and they chose to attend the little church of the Nazarene in Othello, Washington. And that's where so many, so much of my early childhood was shaped. Uh, I accept Jesus into my heart many times as a little kid and uh, went off to college thinking I was going to go into media of some sort and eventually decided I was really most interested in the big questions of life and I ought to pursue theology and philosophy. Um, I was also one of these people who was an evangelical who like did a lot of witnessing. I was a part of Campus Crusade for Christ. I was in bars and on beaches sharing the four spiritual laws and I would bug people on airplanes. I was one of those kind of people. And then near the end of my college career, I took a course in philosophy of religion and for the first time read the writings of really smart people who weren't necessarily theists, atheists, agnostics, or people from other religious traditions. And um, unlike some people probably who take those courses, I took the material seriously. I realized I didn't have very good reasons for believing in God. In fact, I remember coming to pick up my fiance, who's now my wife, her getting in the car and returning to her and saying, I can't believe in God anymore. And my reasons for atheism or agnosticism, or whichever it was, uh, were intellectual. And I kept at that quest and eventually came to the place where I thought it was more plausible than not, I'm not certain, but it's more plausible than not, that there is a God. And um, two things brought me to that initially. I wanted something like ultimate meaning in life. And I realized I couldn't have that without the ground of meaning that many people call God. And I also had these deep intuitions that I ought to be a loving person and that other people ought to love. I couldn't give a good grounding for those intuitions if there wasn't something like a source of love that people call God. And uh, so that brought me back to that place. In fact, <laughs> I mean, for quite a, for a few years, I had a really thin theology. <laughs> like, I believed there was a loving God, thought Jesus is pretty cool, and that was about it. <laughs> Don't ask me about eschatology. Don't ask me about creation. <laughs> um, over time, though, I developed a more intricate theology, and I suspect we're going to be talking about that today. I'm just curious, uh, in that initial kind of movement into agnosticism or atheism, was there a particular kind of book or argument or thinker that really got under your skin in a certain way that moved you in that direction? Or was it really just a, a general experience of that variety that you were talking about? I think it was more in general, but the problem of evil had always bothered me from, you know, since I was probably in junior high, that had been a tough one. And I had some tricky moves when I was doing my witnessing on the street. I had my Bible, you know, to, to give me some of my reasons for why there still could be a God. I was doing what I now know as a defense of my 
faith. I wasn't giving a, a plausible solution to the problem of evil. I was just giving some kind of defense why it might be rational to believe in a God despite evil. Also, it was at that time, and this is something that's not changed, it was at that time that I began to think that the cosmological argument that there must be a first cause, I didn't think that made sense anymore. And I still don't think it makes sense today. So we could talk about that, how I can believe in God without thinking that God is the first, absolute first cause. But uh, it was those, it was kind of a collection of things, but those two kind of rose to the top at that time. And they're, they're both clearly still influencing your work now. I mean, I, I did a review of God Can't for the West Star Magazine a few months ago. And of course, nice. theology is, is front and center in that book. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, the God Can't book is really a book meant for the general audience, but I've developed the what I call my essential kenosis theology, not only to wrestle with the problem of evil, but also for these topics I've already mentioned, uh, initial creation of the universe and an eschatological vision and you know, all kinds of other things. Yeah. So those questions that you were asking that, that Jordan was just kind of getting after, right, that pushed you towards agnosticism, atheism, and probably helped you circle back into theism, right? You mentioned there's there's intellectual reasons there, and you mentioned the problem of evil. Those are things that lead a lot of people toward open relational process view. Yeah. And uh, one, one of the things you, you start off the book with is you have these vignettes of different people. I, I presume they're real people. Maybe they're fictional, just asking real questions. It doesn't really matter to me, but, you know, they're experiencing these challenging situations of different kinds, questioning their theological assumptions as a result. What other kinds of questions in your experience, different kinds of concerns and such are people bringing that most often turn people toward an open and relational theology? Yeah, I mean, for a number of people, it's the questions of science and religion. Usually for most people, it's the question of evolution, but then it expands to other dimensions of science. Uh, if the world is, or the universe is 13.7 billion years old, if we are, we're an, another animal species and a long lineage of complexification, then how does that square with a God as a creator? And, open relational theology process thought has some really good answers to that. Other people uh, are asking ecological questions, especially about God's relation to the world. They're, they're dissatisfied with that God who sits out on Mars eating popcorn while we try to twiddle our thumbs on planet Earth. They, they believe God is truly here in the world, truly present. And many of those embrace a, a view called panentheism. Um, some come to open a relational thought because they've asked questions about uh, the efficacy of prayer. A lot of people grow up in the church. You people who don't grow up in the church, a lot of people, they pray and they ask God to do something. Even people who have very nominal belief in God, sometimes in their life, they will say, God, help me out here. <laughs> and they seem to do that, supposing that that prayer just might make a difference. But if God is the God of Calvin, Luther, Augustine, Aquinas, who's outside of time and knows all of history, either foreordained it or at least foreknows all things, it's hard to understand how our prayers right now might actually make a difference for how the future unfolds. Uh, so that's another issue. And I could go on. Yeah. The question of time is, is a big one. Right. Um, you mentioned Calvin in there and 
that brings up all kinds of questions about determinism, okay. free will. We'll, well I, I'm sure we'll get into that stuff. But one of the things that you write in the introduction is ignoring life's pain comes at a cost, irrelevance. Theology worth embracing must account for beauty and evil, warm fuzzies and intense suffering. I mean, I like that. I happen to agree with that. So maybe you can explain to us how does open and relational theology account for all those things in a coherent, a convincing way? Yeah, maybe you can say something about how that contrasts with or is different from the orthodox view, for lack of a better word. Yeah, I think there's two interesting problems that sophisticated people deal with today. One is an ancient problem that people have dealt with for a long time, and that's the question of evil. If there is a God, and this God is perfectly loving and perfectly powerful, then why doesn't this God prevent the genuine evil in the world? And for the most part, theists have, I think, punted on that question. They've appealed to mystery. God's ways are not our ways. They've said, well, maybe in some mysterious way, everything that happens is for our good. So some kind of a greater good defense or God trying to teach us a lesson and build our character. And none of those have really been satisfying, even to the people who usually propose them. <laughs> um, and so today there's a significant number of theists, especially professional philosophers, who are either playing defense, in other words, they're saying we can still be rational creatures and yet not have a real solution to this question, or they're just claiming what's called skeptical theism. They're saying we don't even have to try to answer this question because it's beyond our knowledge. I have a bold claim I put on the table. I'm not pussyfooting around. I think I solve the problem of evil. And that sounds so audacious to people today, especially in scholarly circles. They hear someone say, you solve the problem of evil. Well, I think that I have, I think, various dimensions, but the most controversial part of it is rethinking what God can do. And that's the part that most people have been unwilling to do. Rethink what most people call God's omnipotence. Um, Tom, I mean, you... The way that you just said the word omnipotence, uh, kind of yeah. pushing back against omnipotence, and the title of, of your last book, God Can't, um, there, there's a kind of divine impotence here um, that, that I think is really interesting. And it makes me wonder, one of the more recent theological, um, kind of sophisticated theological responses to the, the problems that you're describing right now is the liberationist uh, version of God, right? A, a God who um, enters into history on the side of the oppressed and suffers alongside humanity. I'm wondering uh, why you didn't go that route, because that also provides, you know, coherent answers to a lot of the questions that, you know, Matt brought up a minute ago and that you were just working through. Um, but it comes from a different direction. It comes from a, rather than a scientific direction, uh, it comes from a historical direction, right? God must enter into history with us. Um, anyway, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the relational part of open and relational theology and what that has to do maybe with liberation theology. Yeah, yeah. I'm totally on board with a suffering God, a God who enters into history and feels our pain and suffers with us, the God whom Whitehead called the fellow sufferer who understands. That's at the very heart of what it means to be open and relational. But I think people who take that approach and don't go further don't really solve the problem of evil. 
because it's not enough to say that God just suffers with us, as important as that is, if God has the kind of power to prevent unnecessary suffering, pointless pain, genuine evil, then a loving God ought to do so. So imagine um, you and I, uh, Jordan, where uh, I come out there to Rhode Island because I'm seeing my daughter who lives in Massachusetts and we meet up for dinner in Providence. And after dinner, we're driving down the freeway and you're a quarter mile ahead of me. And all of a sudden I see you swerve and your car starts flipping end over end down the freeway and you end up in the side of the road. I screech off to the, my car to the side. I run up next to you and there you are lying underneath your car against your chest in such a way that you're, you can't breathe. And you look up at me and you say, Tom, Tom, help me out here. I can't breathe. And I realize that if you don't get the car off you, you're going to die. And I also realize that just the way the car is positioned, I could push it and I could save you. But instead I say, you know, Jordan, I just want to be a suffering servant here. I just want to hold your hand in this moment and, and suffer in this, the last breaths of your life. And you die there. I feel your pain. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's Bill Clinton theology. <laughs> now, your loved ones would not think I was a loving person if I had the ability to save your life, but just decided to hold your hand and empathize. I think we need to apply that logic to God. Yeah, I think God suffers with us. I really do in every circumstance. But unless we add to that notion that God simply can't, single-handedly prevent unnecessary suffering and pointless pain. I don't think we've gone far enough. I, I mean, it's interesting you used the phrase, I can't breathe, right? Um, <laughs> that wasn't planned. That was, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I didn't even but, know. But I mean, I, I think there's something to be said for a theology uh, in, in which, you know, God suffers and relates to humanity, but that necessarily leads to a politics. Yeah. Um, the other thing about Bill Clinton saying, I feel your pain. I mean, that was in response to being confronted by uh, an AIDS activist uh, mm -hmm. at a fundraising dinner. Um, what are you doing on behalf of the gay community? What are you doing on behalf of mm -hmm. the fight against HIV and AIDS? And he responded by saying, I feel your pain. Right. And there's the impotence. It doesn't go further than that. Right. right. I, I want I, a God who I'm not sorry. only feels our pain, but does the utmost possible for God to do to alleviate, alleviate that pain. I think some people think we have to choose between a God who controls everything or could control everything and the God of deism or the God whose ways are just beyond our knowledge, our kin, a sort of a, an inactive God or a God who does everything or could do everything. I think there's a middle ground here. It says that God is influential. In fact, the most influential. I even want to go so, so far as to use words like almighty, even though the way I define almighty is going to sound different from the classical way. Because what I think God is, is the strongest, most influential being in the entire universe. And God can be almighty in that sense without being able to control anyone or even anything. I'm curious if you can like just unpack that more because I mean I've heard this sort of thing said before and it sounds good but I sort of struggle to really onboard it I mean it, it seems to entail a sort of radical reconception of power yes 
right? So maybe you can talk about that, contrast it with omnipotence, um, with this term you you talk about. I'd never heard it before. Amipotence, am I saying that right? Amipotence, the reason you never heard it, because I invented it for this book. Oh, look at you. <laughs> this is the first all creative in stuff. history, yeah. <laughs> all right, go ahead. Tell us what it's all about. All right. So omnipotence is a word I came up with. Ami is the Latin prefix for love. Houghton is the Latin prefix for power. So it's a power, the power of love. Kind of just a, a gimmicky way of thinking about God's power in ways that's not classical omnipotence, but also not, as Jordan mentioned earlier, an impotent God. He does is a do-nothing. Probably a more sophisticated philosophical way to put it, Matthew, is like this. Um, love comes first, logically, in God's nature. And that means we should understand all of God's other attributes in light of love. Now, what is this love? I think this love is always self-giving, others empowering. It acts for the good of others and receives in response. Now, if that comes first in God's nature, before God's power, we need to think about God's power in light of this self-giving, others-empowering love. And if that's truly the way God's love is, which is my proposal on the table, then I think God's love is essentially or inherently uncontrolled. To put it in a kind of a little pithy way, because God loves everyone and everything, God can't control anyone or anything. That makes sense. I mean, it sort of brings to mind for me the notion of weak power, you know, Vadimo, uh, Caputo. Yeah. Is along those lines or is it is an important difference in some way? Because those guys don't, don't like really it. get on board with the metaphysics of process, right? So Yeah. I don't like the phrase weak power. It's better than omnipotence, but um, this is the way I like to define my view. In contrast to some process people and in contrast to some openness people. So let me start with the openness people. Some openness people present God's power in such a way that God voluntarily decides not to control us, at least most of the time. Jürgen Moltmann, for instance, talks about God voluntarily withdrawing and allowing space or room for creaturely freedom. The problem with that view is if God voluntarily withdraws, it sounds as if God could decide not to withdraw sometimes and step in and fix crap in the world. I mean, wouldn't a loving God stop the pandemic if this God were able to? Why, why does this God withdraw and allow, allow that virus to cause the havoc? And we could go on and on adding examples to that. So that's the problem with the voluntary kenosis or voluntary self-limitation view. Some of my process friends have a view of God that sounds as if God is constrained by external laws, forces, or factors, as if God's got God's metaphorical hands tied behind his back saying, oh, and I'd really like to help you out here, Jordan, but, you know, these external things, these you know, in biblical language, we'd say principalities and powers. In scientific language, we might say the natural laws. In metaphysics, we might say the metaphysical laws that govern any universe whatsoever, whatever these are. My view is between those two. My view says God's very nature of love is what constrains God's power. God's not constrained by external forces, 
but it's also not a voluntary decision not to intervene. It's God's way of being inherently, in fact, I think everlastingly, to self-give and others in power, and therefore God is essentially uncontrolling by nature. The stuff about the power of love... Uh, kind of following on some of our earlier examples brought to mind for me the the Cornell West comment about um, justice is what love looks like in public. Uh, and so, you know, I, I wanted to push you again on uh, what what a an open and relational political theology might look like, um, or if, you know, that might in fact be part of your, your next project or another one coming in the future. Um, it, it's one thing to be in this realm of um, kind of the metaphysics. It's another thing to talk about the way that individual people experience that. But I'm wondering what happens on a social or a political level as well. Yeah, I recently wrote a paper uh, that I might just develop into a book eventually, Jordan, called What It Might Mean to Develop a Loving Civilization. So I'm not just talking about individuals, not even local communities, not even societies, but a whole civilization. <laughs> what would that look like? What are the ingredients of a loving civilization? And here I'm actually building on uh, the Vasileia de Feu, uh, uh, you know, the kingdom of God language we find in scripture, because uh, I think that's it's all encompassing. So what does that look like? Well, of course, it's going to look like uh, establishing justice for those who don't have the kind of rights and privileges that most have. So, uh, you know, a special initiative for the poor and the marginalized. It's going to reject forms of violence that overpower and force people to do things. Um, that's tricky business. I, I want to admit right up front, it's not always easy to figure out how to do that, but a nonviolent approach to a civilization seems like the way we must go. Uh, there's going to be ways of thinking about uh, the intrinsic value, not only of humans, but of other creatures and of, and of the planet. So an ecological vision. So there's going to be a lot of dimensions, I think, in the kind of thing you're suggesting, Jordan. Uh, that might be a whole interview in and of itself. But you're right. The open and relational vision, generally speaking, in my own particular form of it, suggests a kind of uh, political agenda. Uh, that transcends political parties, but seeks the common good. Can we circle back real quick and uh, just by way of defining some terms? Um, okay, sorry. No, it's it, this is great. Um, why open and relational and not process? Excellent. I developed the label open and relational to be an umbrella under which process is one form Openness is another form. Relational thoughts, another form. Some forms of post-colonialism under this. Some forms of feminist theology. There's all kinds of variations and mixes and all kinds of things under this big umbrella that unites under two big ideas. The relational part is the idea that with God is truly relational in the sense of being affected by what we do and has created a relational world in which we are affected by others and affect. The openness part is what Matt said earlier about this relation of God to time. That is that not only is there a genuine future for us that we don't know with certainty, there's a genuine future for God that God doesn't know with certainty. And so uh, it takes the questions of time and makes it central not only to 
creaturely domains, but God as well. Sounds good to me. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, yeah. So you mentioned time in there. We've touched on mystery, um, determinism, theodicy. Yeah, theodicy. I don't really find arguments for a, a dictator sort of deterministic God worse than what you end up with on the other end in in the in the swamp of mysteries. Like what I mean is that nothing makes my eyes roll harder than when somebody's raising the theodicy question and you know out pop you know all the appeals to mystery. You know, they're always made to sound like this, um, like epistemic humility, you know, but it's not that, <laughs> right? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I, maybe it's the opposite of humility. I think arrogance might be too ungenerous. <laughs> but I mean, wh what do you think about that? Because it seems to me yeah. a perfectly reasonable thing to want to sort of, for lack of a better word, run protection for, on the mystery of God, especially like, you know, in an apophatic register, which I'm sympathetic to. Um, What's the place of mystery right. um, upon an open and relational view, if it's not to explain away the problem of evil? Right. <laughs> right. I think there's two kinds of appeals to mystery that often are mixed up together in this conversation, and I want to keep them separate. The first kind of mystery is the kind of mystery that we all ought to claim, and that is saying we don't know everything. We haven't got it figured out. There's always more to learn. God and existence is bigger than we can ever fully fathom. If that's what mystery is, everyone ought to play that card. But the other form of mystery is the kind of card that you get played when you back get backed into a corner. You have a particular model of God, a conceptual scheme. You make certain claims. These claims end up suggesting certain consequences that don't look so good for your model of God. So you reach into your back pocket and you pull out the mystery card and you go, ka-chunk. Well, you know, I don't know. God's ways aren't our ways. I think there's a better way to go. And it says this. Everybody ought to put a model of God on the table that they think is best overall. Takes account of scripture best, experience best, science best, philosophy, art, whatever. You put that model of God on the table and the model's that don't have those mystery cards whenever something difficult comes up, but can handle the big questions of life, those are going to be inherently more adequate models of God than the ones that have to keep filling the gaps with little mystery cards here and there. Now, it may be that some explanations are up there that are going to compete against others, and I have one on the table. I like it best. But I'm willing to switch to somebody else's if they can convince me. It's not like a it's not all about me. It's all about what model of God makes the best sense overall and answers our biggest questions of life without appealing to mystery in that sense. In talking about the God of the gaps that way, I immediately go to Bonhoeffer um, yeah. and, and I start thinking about uh, what it means to live in the world as if there were no God. Um, that it then becomes a, a human imperative rather than a view toward coming up with the best conception of God, right? But the, the, the responsibility falls back on us. Yeah. Can I pick up on that? I got a question for you. I think it's related to what Jordan's saying. Can you have a kingdom of God without God? In my view, no. Some people say yes. But for me, conceptually, intellectually, I want, again, a best overall explanation for things. I earlier talked about a model of God, but I'm, I'm expanding that to an overall explanation. 
And I just can't give a good explanation for these deep desires for beauty, well-being, love, justice, harmony, if there isn't something like a source for that. Now, I've tried to come up with a source that says it's my evolutionary history or it's my environment or my social upbringing. But every time I go that direction, I find contradictions within that. So, for instance, you know, people say, well, that's just the way you were raised. Well, lots of people rebel against they were, the way they were raised. Or people will say, well, that's just the way Americans think about justice. Well, tons of people, even Americans, criticize the, quote, American view of justice. So that can't be the explanation. Even evolutionary uh, notions, we often go against what's to our evolutionary advantage when we, for instance, adopt children who have a different biological heritage. Or we care for pets who aren't even our own species, sometimes at our own uh, detriment. So all, I want to bring in all those factors in presenting the best overall model and the models I find most appealing, not just, you know, psychologically, but intellectually as well, are models that actually have a real God, in them. not just a sort of figment or not just sort of a concept that functions, an actual living omnipresent spirit of love in the universe. Those models make the most sense to me. All right. <laughs> not much more to say to that. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to argue with you. Yeah. Well, I'm not so, trying to, I'm not an evangelist trying to convince you either. So I'm just trying to talk. Oh about yeah. No, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. Life. Yeah. Plenty have tried. <laughs> I mean, th th there is something kind of evangelical, though, at kind of at the core of this argument, right? I mean, yeah, if yeah. evangelicalism mm. at the heart of it is that personal relationship with Jesus, mm. you're, yeah. you're giving a variation on that theme, right? That's correct. You know, um, most people in open relational theology, they like to use the word relational versus personal, but we can do that. You know, I don't mind talking about a personal God. Uh, I just want to, you know, there's all kinds of baggage that comes along with that, different views of personal that I would reject. But yeah, at the end of the day, there's really a God, according to open relational theology, that God really interacts with us, has an interest in us. We have a real effect on that God. And so it can sound an awful lot like the personal God of evangelicalism. Of course, you know, once you lop off divine omnipotence as classically understood, lop off uh, divine omniscience is classically understood, then uh, it sounds to many evangelicals as like it's not the God they believe in. But there is that one element at least in common. I'm just curious, like how all what we've already discussed folds into or, or overlaps with this debate, seemingly endless debate on, on free will versus determinism, because it, it seems to me that one of the things that open relational folks want to resist is a certain kind of determinism that the logic of the omni-god entails. Right. Right. Um, somewhere in the book you wrote, if God predecides everything, freedom isn't real. 
And that seems to get the heart of it. Like, you know, and, you know, Calvinism usually is the, is the, the whipping boy for this, but you want to say that the sort of conventional or consensus view, however you want to put that pretty much amounts to the same thing. Is that right? Right. Yeah. What some people call compatibilism that somehow we're free and also God determines things that doesn't make any sense to me. Okay. I think though, in this debate, Sometimes the side that I want to uh, promote, mm-hmm. the freedom side of things, the free will, to use the common language side of things, um, the way that's portrayed sounds like you're free to do anything. Mm-hmm. How many times have I heard some professional athletes say to some bunch of kids, you know, you can do anything you want to do? Well, come on. There's, you know, right now the Phoenix uh, Suns are doing really well. I'd love to play guard next to Booker, but you know, I can't, I can't start for the Suns in the playoffs right now. There's certain limitations I face and there's tons of limitations as I start thinking of all the possible things I would want to do. But given my background, given where I'm at, my location, given constraints internal and external to who I am, I think I have genuine, but always limited freedom. And so the kind of free will argument that I want to propose says we make choices moment by moment amongst a fairly limited number of options, but there's still a number of options. So it's still genuine freedom. Yeah. You know, my mom, she, she said something similar to me um, growing up more than once. I'm sure a lot of kids have heard it. You can be anything you want to be. And that was like the worst thing she could have ever said. She's, she's right in the other, she's right in the other room, but she, her hearing is terrible. So, um, but I, I always found that very like overwhelming and anxiety yeah. inducing. I was like, Oh my God, that's too many choices. You know, it's like the paradox of choice thing. There's too many cereals in, in the cereal aisle. Yep. Um, but anyway, I mean, I, I agree with you about the limited, limited freedom thing, but this is something of a live question for me because I can imagine a theological response that posits something like a version of the block universe in a theological register. This is the orthodox view and it's a central critique as I take it by open and relational types. But it seems to me that perhaps both things can be true at the same time, right? Free will and determinism. And I know it sounds like maybe counterintuitive. I'm not sure, but putting aside the, the relational part, cause I, I sort of take that as a given and let's just agree momentarily that the future does exist in, in a real way. God would be there, not outside of time. God is inside of time because that would be a deal breaker. So God would know the future in a sense, but that doesn't seem like it would necessarily entail a strict determinism. Would it? Like I keep coming back to Nietzsche on this, his idea of the, um, the dice roll. Um, and I know he's kind of, he's kind of talking about eternal recurrence, pure affirmation and that sort of thing. But I think, you know, Nietzsche is something of a, uh, like a metaphysician in spite of himself. Yeah. The dice roll seems like it could be like this indeterminate state, which you've talked about where free will uh, happens. And then when the dice falls, it's fixed, determined, but fully affirmed. So you get both, you know, not like a paradox. It's not a contradiction. It's a parallax. And I don't know. What do you think about that? I'm not even sure I like that idea. It's just one that I had and I wanted to run it, run it past you. Yeah, there are lots of worries and red flags that jumped in my mind as you were explaining it. Okay. One just real quick one. If it's really a block universe, then how is it truly the future for God? It seems like there would be no future past if it's a block universe. Now, it might be future from our perspective. Uh, if that's what you meant, then, of course, we have a 
you know, some sort of different dimension God is in, and then it's hard to see how God is in time. And so all those things come back. But one of the things you said that I think you voice a misconception of open relational theology, not that you have this misconception, but you voice it that many other people have, mm -hmm. goes something like this. Um, how is it, they ask, that if somehow God could know the future, then that would somehow take away our free will? Or that God's knowledge of the future would force us to do what God wanted? And it sounds like God's knowing is a causal or determining factor in making us do something and taking away our free will. I hear this objection by tons of different people. And it, it misunderstands the open and relational claim about the status of the future. At their best, at least, open and relational theologians don't claim that God, if God could allegedly foreknow the future, that knowledge would determine the future or would take away our free will. What the open and relational folks are claiming is that God could only know the future with absolute certainty if it was already settled and determined. So it's not God's knowing that takes away freedom. It's that God could only know with certainty if the future was settled, and that is incompatible with a robust view of freedom in which you choose amongst live options. Yeah, no, I appreciate that response. I'll think about that some more. Yeah. Getting down the weeds now. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I, I like the weeds. Good. <laughs> Jordan, you got anything else? Uh, I got a lot of things. Um, in your last couple answers, Tom, um, yeah. it, it made me think of what you were starting to say earlier on about prayer mm. and what it means for a person to pray to a, an open and relational God. Yeah. Um, and, and I think in some ways that's really the question of, of theism itself, right? Why are we maintaining a theistic conception of God rather than a God who is the ground of being, you know, kind of a depersonalized God in some way? Um, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I come down pretty hard on that ground of being language because uh, the ground of being language doesn't necessarily have to be understood in non-relational ways. It's just that when I ever hear, whenever I hear that phrase, I think of Paul Tillich. And Tillich had a non-relational God. So for me, ground of being is non-relational. But in terms of prayer, this is one of the most common questions people have. Because they, they hear me say, this is God of, of love who experiences time, relational, but can't single-handedly bring about results in and then they say, well, why should I pray? And I like to respond by saying, um, think about some of the other models of God you've entertained in the past and their implications for what it means for prayer. So, you know, take that John Calvin God. If God predestines, predetermines, foreknows everything from all eternity, then our praying for something to change in the future for Aunt Millie's leg to get better that's already been decided and determined. Our prayers don't change a whit of what's already going to be. Most people, though, don't really have a Calvin's view, at least when they pray. <laughs> some, some diehard Calvinists I know pray like, like John Calvin's God is not really their God. But anyway, most people have what I think of as kind of an Arminian view of God. And this is a God who could single-handedly fix things, 
who loves perfectly. And if this is the case, it's hard for me to get motivated to pray for this God to do something. Because this God's smarter than I am, loves perfectly, and can single-handedly fix things without any input from me or anyone else. So, like, why pray? Just assume God's going to do what God's going to do, and, you know, my actions don't, don't really matter. Um, besides, if you think that if somehow God is waiting for you to ask 37 times, that doesn't portray a God who's very loving, right? It sounds like a pretty self-centered, egotistical kind of God, and that kind of undermines the whole perfect love thing. A lot of people who think through the implications of those first two models will go to a model that says this, and I hear this a lot in mainline churches when I, as I speak in a lot of mainline churches. They'll say, prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. Now, I think our prayers can change us, but I think there's lots of biblical reasons to think that God is also affected by prayers, and the future actually might be different when we pray. So this fourth model is what I think of as a, a good open relation of view of, of, of prayer. And it makes like three or four big assumptions. One assumption, God is affected by what we do and prayer is an action. So prayer has an effect on God. Second assumption, we live in an interrelated universe and our actions affect ourselves and others. Third assumption, God experiences time like we do which means that what we do in one moment affects God and God can use that activity in future moments. Fourth assumption, God can't single-handedly control outcomes. You put those all together and you have a way of thinking about prayer that says this, when I pray in one moment, that has an effect upon God, me, and the world. And new opportunities, new possibilities new avenues for God to act in the next moment might be possible because of what I've done. I give God kind of new input or relational data that God takes into God's self and responds in whatever situation. I'm not saying that my prayers enable God to force other people to do what they don't want to do. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that my actions become additional input in the world and in God's own experience that God can use in the future. And therefore, prayer, from an open relational perspective, actually makes a difference. One of the things I appreciate about that is uh, upon that view, when you pray, you don't have to cross your fingers. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and um, over the course of the last year, I started doing a, uh, it's not exactly a Bible study. It's a, it's a sort of like a current events group, but a lot of the, the folks who are in the group, one of which is my dad, they're sort of Orthodox Christians and expects there will be prayer. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so that's been an interesting uh, place for me to be. And it's been helpful at least pretending I'm an open relational yeah. <laughs> type. <laughs> you know, it makes it, it makes it like, oh, this is, this is fine. I, I, yeah. I can pray. I don't feel like I'm just, you know, talking to the wall. It's cool. <laughs> and everyone else really appreciates it. <laughs> One of my ongoing exercises is to try to pray prayers in public and in my head, but especially in public, that I actually believe. Because I'm not about you guys. I have certain 
habits that I've developed over time, listening to other people pray. And it's really easy for words to come out of my mouth that I don't believe at all. Oh, yeah, it's the worst. Yeah. So, I mean, when I'm praying in church, because I'm, I'm from a tradition in which extemporaneous prayers are sort of expected. Like, I'm you know, trying to be really careful to think, say things I actually believe. And uh, I enjoy it, actually. At first, it was kind of annoying. But now it's kind of a challenge. I'm like, yeah, what am, how am I going to articulate a prayer I really actually believe that's more than, you know, just something like, uh, thank you, God, for X. Actually, even that is something that you have to, you know, think through. What am I thanking God for? In my view, God's always the source of something good. So God gets partial thanks, but not, God is not the only one to bring something good about. So, you know, I like to say, I can thank God at Thanksgiving and also thank whoever made the Thanksgiving dinner for putting in the time. I can thank both. Mm -hmm. I've got, I've got one more. It's actually a multi-part question. (laughs) Why don't don't you ask your multi-part question? All right. So I was talking to our our mutual friend trip earlier today and, you know, I mentioned to him, I'll be talking to you. And so I asked him, you know, what should I ask Tom? So he just starts giving me all these questions. It's, um, and there are some good ones in there. I don't, I don't really want to waste any of them. So I'm just going to ask them all and you, and you can, yeah, yeah. Write them down. And then you can pick from them which three you want to talk about. Okay. I like this. Okay, cool. I mean, you can talk, you can answer them all if you want, but you have to, you have to at least pick three. Okay. All right. So here they are. Um, Freedom and determinism. What? (laughs) uh, Let's see here. How did you get into nature photography? By the way, I've seen some of your photos that you post on, on uh, online. They're, They're really good. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I get jealous of all your adventuring. Um, uh, let's see. Tell us about your existentialist metal band in college. <laughs> aren't, all, aren't all metal bands existentialists? <laughs> that's right. You know, a little that's, redundancy there. Yeah. Um, what's the closest you've ever come to dying on a hike or camping? Uh, how do you relate to your favorite wild spaces? I'm not sure what that means exactly. I feel like there's probably some nudity involved in that response. <laughs> tell right. us, tell us about your unique brand of panpsychism. Oh, yeah. uh, if you, if you pick that one, you're probably gonna have to explain something about what that is for people who haven't heard of that. Uh, um, that let's see. I've already, I actually already asked that one. Uh, okay, one more. Why do you invest so much energy into speaking to folks who keep pushing you away? Sad Ooh. face. <laughs> I think some, I'm going to some try to all of them, but the panpsychism one, even though that one's important to me, I've written cool. a lot about it. But the other ones are kind of more personal. Or, yeah, right. Or Nature photography, that's a big part of the way that I not only try to develop my artistic eye, but also experience God and creation, get some exercise, get some solitude. You know, I live in Idaho. It's not hard to find solitude in Idaho. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of places you can go and not see people for days. In fact, uh, seven or eight years ago, I hiked from Utah, or I'm sorry, Nevada to Canada, 950 miles uh, through Idaho. I think I'm the sixth person to do it in one summer. And I did a little naked backpacking on that trip. But uh, I got to say, going naked is tough. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. Can we just, can you just say that again? You did that 950 miles naked? No, not the whole way naked. I did some of it naked. (laughs) Oh, well, that's less impressive. 
<laughs> far less <laughs> continue yeah no i couldn't do the whole thing i mean she start thinking about when I mean, you're naked you got things to worry about one sunburn on spaces of your body that don't usually get sun two mosquito bites on the same places three branches that hit you about mid-waist not to mention the idea that there possibly might be other hikers, which in the section I was doing it, I didn't see a single person, so that was not an issue. So uh, enough about nakedness. Um, oh, on that particular hike, that was also where I came to close to dying. Ran out of water on a ridge, couldn't get to water, eventually drank my own urine. I don't suggest people do that. It didn't help me. Um, I'm really bearing some stuff for you guys here, <laughs> laying it all on the line. Existential metal band. I've been in lots of rock and roll bands in my life. Some metal, some punk, some just sort of alternative. Um, back when I was in grad school, I was in existentialist course in which we had to write a paper every week on the existentialist books that we read for the week. And I was so sick of writing papers in grad school. I said to the to the uh, program or the professor, I said, instead of writing paper, I'm going to cut a song every week. So every Saturday, I would take my reading, whether it's Sartre or Kafka or Heidegger or whatever, and I would write some kind of song related to that. And I had a drum machine, guitar, I did the vocals, I did everything. I only had a four track. Is this on Spotify anywhere? Like, how can I find that? <laughs> that one isn't, but uh, some of my stuff from college is out there in, in the world. Um, anyway, uh, maybe let me end with this one. Speaking to folks. Um, it is true that I'm willing to talk to people who aren't like the home team, who aren't already a part of the raw, raw crowd. Um, I speak at very progressive places and very conservative places. I won't mention them all, but if I did, you would be surprised. Part of the reason I speak at both those places is I think there's something we can learn from people, but especially in the conservative ones, um, I speak there because I used to be like that. <laughs> like, you know, and not only that, I got lots of friends and family who come from that perspective. And uh, although that's been very painful sometimes, I look out into the crowds and I see Tom Ward. I see myself in the faces of a lot of people. And I think to myself, I just might be the first time someone has heard this particular message. In fact, I would say every time I speak at any Grecian Science gathering, somebody will come up afterwards and say, you know, I've kind of already been thinking the way you're talking, but I couldn't find the words to articulate it. About three years ago, I was at a particularly fundamentalist institution for a lot name. They brought me in. I thought I was going to be the only speaker, but when they found out what I was going to talk about, they, quote, protected me by putting two people speaking before me and one speaking after me. But then I got up and did my God can't stuff. Now, when I do that, I mean, those are radical ideas, and it always creates a stir. The meeting is done. I'm waiting for people to come up to me, all these students. Nobody comes to me. It was like the weirdest thing. The only time I think I've ever spoken in which people didn't come up 
you know, either clamoring with a Bible verse that says, yeah, but what about this? Or, you know, having some explanation of demons or miracles or whatever. So I think, well, this is an exception to my, my experience. The next day, email after email from students saying, I didn't want to be seen in public with you. My professors, my parents were there, but I really like what you said, and I've got this question for you or that question. So that's the why, that's the reason I'm a glutton for punishment. I look at the world and see a lot of people who used to be like I was, and or I should say, who are like I used to be, and uh, I have a heart for them. Very nice. Thank you, Tom. Man, I really love this conversation. You guys ask great questions. Thank you. you. You've got good things to say in response to them. Uh, the book is called Open and Relational Theology and Introduction to Life-Changing Ideas by Thomas J. Ord. That's O-O-R-D. Um, came out uh, just a couple months ago, right? It's coming out July 2021. Oh, comes out in July. Yeah. I so, yeah, an advanced copy. That's great. That's right. Yeah. So do you want to... Uh plug anything else do you want to kind of direct people um yeah, to any like of your work you or anything find. like that uh i also direct the center for open and relational theology and we've got a fantastic website at the uh, address the letter c number four ort.com and on that website it lists more than 100 other open relational thinkers some of them scholars some of them pastors some activists farmers poets etc uh, and there's a great resource page where you can go get podcasts, videos, bibliographies. Uh, there's even a doctoral program that I already mentioned into this. Uh, so there's all kinds of great things. Let me encourage your listeners to check out uh, the Center for Open and Relational Theology. Yeah, awesome. We'll link to all that stuff, uh, point people that way. Thank you. Uh, yeah, this was great. Thanks for, uh, thanks for chatting with us. My pleasure, Matt. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you. And uh, I'll, I'll keep my eye on your social media page because I, uh, I love seeing those photos come out. Okay. Have a good rest of the evening. Thanks. Okay. You as well. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of Interrupted, the Westar Institute podcast. If you would like to learn more about the Westar Institute or become a member, visit westarinstitute.org. Interrupted is produced by Jordan Miller and Matthew Baker. We hope you'll join us again next time.